0: It's awesome to see you guys this morning. My name is Tony. I'm the lead pastor here at Wellspring. Uh, If you are uh, new visiting, checking us out, we are excited to have you. If uh, you are in elementary school, Miss Jeannie is back there. She would love to hang out with you. If you're feeling super cramped in your pew and you're looking for a place to sit, there's tons of room right up here. Feel free to reshuffle. There's lots of room. Uh, so if you're new visiting, good to have you. If you're a middle school or high school, uh, we are glad you're here. We're going to start, uh, sort of a new version of our middle school and high school discipleship, uh, next week. Uh, so you're with me today. Uh, and then we're going to have a meeting after church for all parents of folks uh, in middle school or high school. We'd love for you to come bring your youth. We're going to do sort of an update on where we're at and where we're going and all that stuff. All right. With that said, uh, so we're in John, the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through John since May. Uh, and I think, I, I wanted to start with a story. So when I was in Washington, um, we used to travel through the, the Gospels on a regular basis and sort of lean into the life of Jesus and what he was like and stuff. And I remember there was this conversation I had with this guy named Rob. And Rob came up to me one day and he's like, you know, I sort of thought that Jesus was this like cuddly, kind of nice guy. And as we're actually leaning into these texts, into these stories, I'm realizing he's way more intense than I thought he was. And it was kind of like abrasive to this person. They were like, I don't know what to do with this Jesus that I'm encountering. Now, if you come today with a little bit of a expectation that Jesus is sort of this homely, nice guy, there's both truth in that. uh, And I want to read a quote by N.T. Wright. And this is about the passage we're going to read today. He says this, We prefer to think of Jesus and his teaching in terms of sweet gentleness and reasonableness, helping people to understand the love of God by homely illustrations in parables drawn from everyday life. This sharp exchange, what we're going to talk about today, is an embarrassment. Oh, wait, did I read it? Homely, there we go. Sharp exchange and embarrassment at the level of culture. But we need to think again. And what he's saying is this this text is going to challenge some of the ways that we think about who Jesus is is. And if we think about it, it kind of makes sense. In chapter seven, right, you have these folks trying to arrest Jesus to kill him. They fail in their attempt. In chapter eight, it's a continuation. At the end of this chapter in verse 59, people are going to try and stone him. So N.T. Wright invites us to think of this passage in these terms. This is a man facing a crowd set upon stoning him and bravely speaking up against their hypocrisy. So what we're going to see today is Jesus speaking into a group of people, some of whom are in his side, some of whom are decidedly not. Now we're going to tackle this text. It's a little bit longer. It's verses 21 through 47 in chapter 8. We're going to do with it in uh, two chunks. Uh, The first chunk is 21 to 30, and this is how it reads. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you they asked? Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, right? many believed in him. Now, if you've been with us through our journey through John, you'll realize that the beginning of this chapter actually is really reminiscent of chapter 7. So, chapter 7, I think it's 33 to 34, they ask him, he's like, Oh, where I'm going, you won't come. And they're like, Is he going to the Greeks? You know, he's like, Not making it here. He can't sort of pass muster, so he's going to go to the Greeks, right? But here we see they're like, Is he going to kill himself? Now, in Greek, or what they see, though, in verse uh, 23, though, we'll see is that Jesus offers this really challenging distinction. He's sort of picking up on what's going on. And he offers this really challenging distinction. He says this, I am from above, right? I am not of this world, right? And what he means by that is he's from God. He's connected to the Father. He's not alienated. He's connected to the kingdom. He's aligned with the Father. And he says, of them, uh, you are from below, right? You are of this world, meaning exactly the opposite. You're alienated from God. You're connected to this world, not to Jesus and his kingdom. And the fifth, as if this wasn't provocative enough, he makes this pretty staggering comment in verse 24. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Now one of the things that's interesting, so when we read in English it says, I am he. If you look at it Greek, it actually simply says, if you do not believe that I am ego on me now we've read it run into this a few times in John right ego on me what is what is god how does he introduce himself to moses in front of the burning bush i am who i am right so this is echo back to the old testament saying hey i am god He again repeats this in verse 28. So he's saying, hey, you'll recognize if you believe in me, if you do not believe in me and who I am, you will die in your sins. You will remain trapped. Now, this kind of makes sense, right? God is sending Jesus as his ambassador of the kingdom. And if they don't recognize who he is, right, they can't participate in a kingdom if they don't know the king. If they don't know who he is, they can't align with who he is and what the father has sent him to do. They cannot participate if they don't know who he is. So he sort of emphasizes this, right? He pushes on it. He says that he is from the father. He does everything the father invites him to do. He says what the father says he should say, right? So if they're opposing him, then they're opposing the father who gives him the words to say and the things to do. So in some ways, he's creating this, this distinction between you're either with me or you're against me. You're either of God or you are opposing him. Verse 28, 29, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Or it's this beautiful connection he has with the Father. He does what pleases the Father. God is doing this new thing in the first century and he's going to free people from the bondage of sin. But if they don't align with him, he's saying, hey, you're going to be trapped in your sin. You're going to be outside the kingdom. You're going to continue living in this below world and not be set free to love above. Now he says this and then he transitions into 31 through 47. And this, there's a lot going on here. Let me just start by reading it. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. Have never, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, anyone, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you that I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father you have, the only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me. For I've come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You believe belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is you do not belong to God. All right, so a lot going on there. You're like, whoa, that's intense. Told you. All right, so there's lots of moving pieces. Let's start uh, verse 31. So he's addressing this group of people that are starting to wrestle with believing. They're kind of curious about who Jesus is. They're starting to believe. There's like nascent belief, and he says this to them. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is saying to this group of people, hey, if you want to draw near to me, if you want to participate in the kingdom, if you want to be sons of the Father, hey, pay attention to what I am saying and doing. Attune your hearts, your eyes, your ears. Attune yourself to me. Abide in my teaching." Remain in my word. Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary says this. So menno is the verb he's translating here. Menno signifies a settled determination to live in the word of Christ and by it, and so entails a perpetual listening to it, reflection on it, holding fast to it, carrying out its bidding, Right? So he's saying to this group of people that are now starting to align with him and are less of this world, less from below. He's saying, hey, if you want to be close to me, hold to my teaching, cling to what I am saying and to who I am. And then Jesus says, hey, if you do this, you will know the truth that Jesus is, I am the inaugurator of the kingdom, the son of God. And this truth is will set you free. And this truth will set you free. I think sometimes we think, I know when I first read this, I was like, well, all I need to do then is just like believe. And if I believe, then I'll be set free of all the things that hold me down, all the sins that entrap me. Maybe you felt like this. And I remember early on thinking, man, I, might, I must just not believe enough. Like I need to sort of exercise my belief muscle and I need to believe more, more. And I felt this pressure. I felt this guilt, like, oh, maybe I'm not believing enough. That's why I'm not experiencing the freedom that I hope to experience. And then there was this uh, I had this knee injury in my 20s. And in order to deal with this knee injury, I actually had to have surgery. And then after surgery, I needed to do rehab. And it sort of gave me this analogy for how freedom works in the kingdom. Like, Jesus, I think, is saying to us and to the people there, you are broken. You actually need surgery. And the surgery provides the opportunity for the freedom. But you still need to go to rehab if you want your knee to work. So Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? Come to me, believe in who I am, and you will be set free. But to live in that freedom, you have to go to rehab. You have to remain in my word. You have to abide in my word. And then you will be able to live into that freedom that I offer within the kingdom. It's not simply about, oh, name it and claim it. I believe in Jesus. Now I'm set free of everything. Sort of, but not quite. Jesus offers us freedom, but we need to live into, hold on to the promises, live into his teaching, align our lives with his kingdom. And then right by the power of the spirit, he transforms us. That we be able to live into the freedom that Jesus promises within his kingdom set free from the sin that imprisons us. Now, the crowd doesn't totally get this. They say something like, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We haven't been slaves to anyone, right? How can you say we'll be set free? Which is a really odd comment, honestly. Descendants of Abraham were enslaved in Egypt. Then they were enslaved in Babylon. And they're hardly free now. They are basically under Roman rule, which is sort of, it's just like, get your facts straight. Like, this is just odd. They also seem to convolute this connection between a blood descendant of Abraham and therefore a child of God that is set free into God's promises. We'll talk about this a lot more next week because we're going to really dive into Abraham. But just to say, Jesus does not buy into that. Jesus creates a distinction. Right? He says, hey, if you're really Abraham's descendants, you would live as Abraham lives. You wouldn't be trying to kill me. You wouldn't be lying and trying to entrap me. Rather than following their lead, Jesus says this, verse thirty-four: "Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed." See, Jesus isn't talking about the the slavery they're assuming and historically inaccurate about. He's talking about the slaves, right? That uh, that trap us. Behaviors, perception, ways of being in the world that enslave us, that trap us below, that make us a part of the world, the culture that surrounds us, that is ultimately separated from God, right? Jesus is really reinforcing his previous point that when we align with him, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our behaviors, all of who we are submitted to him. Right? We are set free, but then we're also set free for rehab, right? to align with him, be transformed in his presence by the power of the Spirit. But Jesus doesn't just stop here. This is where it starts to get kind of nasty. Jesus claims they actually have a different father and live within a totally different kingdom. He makes the case because they're trying to kill him, which they are, right? they're not doing what Abraham does, which is live by faith live by trust, and therefore they are proved illegitimate children. He says, you know what? You're actually children of the devil. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. Right? Just as the devil in the Garden of Eden, he paves the way for murder, right? Cain and Abel happens right after, just as the way he paves the way for murder, so they are living as representation, or as, like Satan, they are paving the way for murder of Jesus. Just as the the devil came in, in a snake, in the Garden of Eden, and tried to deceive Eve, so they are living into the deceit that Satan expresses in the world. Right? And this couldn't be more contrary to who Jesus is and what his kingdom's about. If you've been with us on our journey through John, Jesus is constantly saying he has come to bring life, not death. He is constantly coming to bring truth, not lies. Specifically, Jesus says, right, they are opposing him as children of the devil. Now, for some of us, this is kind of confusing because it's like, so what is Jesus seeing? Is he seeing little horned red creatures with pitchforks surrounding him? So what's going on here? Hasatan in Hebrew uh, is adversary. And what he's saying is, you are sataning me. You are behaving like Satan does in the world. You are opposing me, God's ambassador of the kingdom. You are opposing God's fresh new work. Because of that, you are acting like Satan, who is the adversary, the one who opposes. Right? Jesus has come to bring truth and life. They are bringing lies, and they are br- trying to bring murder. Because of that, right, they are opposing God's fresh new work. They are Sataning. Another example of this would be Mark 9. So, Mark 9, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, Hey, you know what? I am going to die. I am going to pick up my cross and I am going to die. And Peter gets up in his face and Peter's like, Dude, I have a better idea. Don't die. <laughs> and what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, it's not like in that instant, Peter is morphed into a, you know, a figure with a pitchfork and horns. He's not saying that. He's saying Peter is opposing God's plan in the world and therefore acting like Satan. Peter is sataning verb, Jesus. Now, this isn't a way to say that there is not a being named Satan, right? But there is a noun and a verb, right? There is a way to Satan to oppose God's work in the world. There's this guy named Richard Beck. He wrote this book called Reviving Old Scratch. And he does a good job of expanding how we understand what Jesus is saying here. He says this, the satanic is everything that tempts us away from taking up our cross and following Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the quintessential expression of self-giving, self-donating, and sacrificial love. The satanic and the demonic are all those forces tempting us away from this love. We might say that spiritual warfare is the constant battle to maintain this cruciform shape. Cruciform, shaped like the cross, Jesus' way of the cross. In a world that is pushing a very different pattern upon us. A world trying to squeeze us into a very different sort of mold. Right, So there's this crowd surrounding Jesus trying to murder him, trying to lie about him, to entrap him. And Jesus is saying, you are children of, God, of the devil because you are adopting the posture of the devil. They are opposing him as Satan opposes God. So I guess my question for us, right? That's kind of the text, is how do we, Right? How do we experience, how do we hold on to the teaching of Jesus so that we are set free by the truth of Jesus in a cultural moment, Right when we can kind of be swept up as these first century folks by lies and things that end up putting us in a position where we oppose God's fresh new work? And I'd like to start with this. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. Through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See, Paul in Colossians, he's less concerned that people are hosting like satanic bonfires. He's more concerned that the Colossians are going to be swept up in whatever cultural fad is impacting their community right, by the spiritual forces at work from below, from this world, and away from Jesus. Don't get taken captive, is what he says. John in 1 John 4, 1 says this, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Again, Richard Beck. Discerning the spirits in a world at work within cultures, systems, nations, institutions, spiritually assessing how we might be drinking the Kool-Aid involves determining if the spirit, the zeitgeist, the culture, the value system, the way of life, or the ideology, ideology at work is satanically adversarial to the cross. Right? In the first century, these religious leaders, this crowd, they're, they're threatened by Jesus, they're threatened they're going to lose control. They're threatened that he's going to create instability in Galilee. He's, they're threatened, they're worried that the Romans are going to swoop in and cause trouble. So what do they do? They oppose Jesus. They embrace a lie. Now, if you've been with us in our journey through the gospel of John, you'll noticed, right, there haven't been any, to date, in chapter 8, any sort of devil-worshipping powwows, right? There haven't been any times where all the devil-worshippers gather together and they plot against Jesus. Instead, what we get in chapter 8 is a people opposed to Jesus and his work in the world because they have been seduced by lies, And when you look back at the Garden of Eden, what you see is you don't see a front on, you know, you don't see like the devil coming with his pitchfork and his horns running at Eve. God says, don't eat from this tree. What's the first thing he says? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Creates questions. Now now he's wondering, oh, did he? Then what's he do? Tells her, you won't die, really. Just eat it. It's not really going to happen. Right? More lies. And then what he does is then he plays on her desire. God just doesn't want you to eat that fruit because then you're going to be wise. Then you're going to know good and evil. You're going to be just like God. And then as soon as he does that, then she says, that fruit does look tasty. It does look nice to eat. And we know how the rest of the story goes. Right? The same is true when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't ask him to murder people. He doesn't ask him to start some sort of genocidal campaign. He says, hey, let me make some bread for you. I know you're hungry. Let me give you a little power. You want to have more influence? You want to help people? Awesome. Let me help you with that. He doesn't actually try and get Jesus to do something that's obviously ethically wrong. He tries to get him to trust away from God and in himself in the Garden of Eden, what is the one descriptor of the, the serpent? He's crafty. Now I say all this because I think we need to be aware of the ways that we can also be deceived into believing the lies that pull us away from Jesus and his kingdom, that minimize the transformation we can experience, that sort of separate us from the truth of God, which then makes it so we don't experience the freedom of God. I think if we're not careful, we can end up being unknowing adversaries of the kingdom. Often, in my experience, it's not by like some commission. We're not like the first century people trying to kill Jesus. That would be very hard to do since he's not walking around. But we're also not, in my experience, we're not like most of us. I would say, you know, 99% of us in this room are not here trying to cause problems. We're not trying to oppose God's work. But sometimes, when we believe in the lies of our culture, we become unknowing opponents of God's work. Let me give you a few examples. There's a lie in our culture about performance, right? That our worth is connected to our performance. So we think, if we perform well, you know what? We are awesome. But we're terrified by this fear of failing. So what happens Then, when someone says, hey, at a church gathering or out in out in the workplace, someone you have an opportunity to lead or use your gifts, you discount yourself. Because you're afraid of failing. And what does that do? It takes away your gift, your offering, the unique way that God has shaped you to make a kingdom impact, takes you off the playing field. Now you've just undermined the impact of our community because you're afraid of failing. Let me give you another example. Self-reliance and asking for help. Sometimes we live in a world where we think, man, you know, if if I, I don't need to, I don't want to ask anyone to do it, whatever it is, right? Because you should be able to do it yourself, right? You don't want to ask for help. You don't want to look weak again. You don't want to be dependent on people again. So what do you do? You try and do it yourself. And what does that do? It robs the community of an opportunity to use their gifts to meet you where you're at. It robs God the opportunity to meet you in a profound way to bring healing and restoration and freedom. When we do it ourselves, we actually undermine the ability of us to connect to one another and us to more fully depend on God. Fulfillment. There's a sort of just, I think, a lie in our culture about how fulfillment, how the good life is lived. Often, often it's through accumulating awesome experiences and aligning yourself with your sort of inner light. So basically, if you can just do awesome things and be true to you, you will be fulfilled. But do you realize how much of a burden that puts on the human individual? It's crazy anxiety-producing and then guilt-producing. It's guilt-producing because every time you fail to do that, you feel guilty. And then every time you can't quite rock it, you feel anxious of like, oh, am I going to be able to do this? But that's not a biblical picture of fulfillment. Fulfillment happens when we align ourselves with Jesus and his truth. We're set free by him to live the way God has made us in community in the kingdom. When we live into this lie, we actually end up traveling all over the place, doing all kinds of things, but we end up not living rooted lives in a community of God's people. We end up being disconnected from God, who is our true light, and people who God has brought us to help us to be transformed into his image. The last one is this, security. I think a lot of us live into this narrative that if only we had more money, if only we had more money, we would feel safe and we'd feel secure. But there's a real lie here. Every study in psychology has said that happiness is not connected to about money, especially once you're no longer homeless or in danger of starvation, that there is no connection. But most of us live into this lie or we can. And what it does is it frees up the assets of the kingdom because now we're trying to stockpile our resources to make sure we are safe and secure rather than investing what God has given us for his kingdom, for his mission in the world. And in that way, we undermine what God is trying to do. I was watching, any of you guys watched the games yesterday? Football. Um, So I was watching one of the games, and I, I thought it was an apt analogy as I was thinking about it. That there's kind of like, there's like God's team, and then there's, you know, the adversary's team. And in the first century, what the adversary's team was trying to do was trying to get people to play for his team. Like murder the other team. I don't think that's actually what's happening today. I think what's happening today is the adversary's team, they sort of sneak over to our sideline and they're like, oh, you're not good enough. Just take off your pads. Go sit in the stands. And we believe that lie. We walk off the field. Or he says, no, you're the best. You're the best. You should have the ball every time. And then you're like, just give me the ball. And what does it do? It creates division. You start to recognizing, hey, I need the blockers in front of me. You can't just do this on your own. Just give me the ball. Or he's like, you don't really like football anyway. <laughs> Go travel. Go do something fun. You realize this stadium is fine, but you have to realize how big the world is out there? Go enjoy it. All those things, what do they do? They undermine the impact of God's team. You're either in the stands, being selfish, or absconding and going wherever you want. All of those lies, right, connected to performance, connected to fulfillment, all these things, they actually undermine God's work in the world. And this is the thing. Jesus wants us to embrace his truth, to be marinated in his truth, to be saturated in his truth, so that we experience his freedom. He doesn't want us to be trapped in these lies which keep us in bondage. So I was trying to think of, like, what is a practical thing we could do that would help us? And that's one thing to, like, know it up here. It's another thing, okay, what do I actually do? I think the answer is in verse 31, right? In the midst of this conversation, Jesus says to these people who want to believe, they say this, he says, abide in my word, hold on to my teaching, right? If you want to navigate the rough terrain of faith, stay close to me, be connected to me. And what we have in the New Testament is Jesus's teaching. And we have in the Old Testament, the teaching that his teaching was based upon. And even if you look, right, at Jesus' temptation in the desert by Satan, how, what does he do? He uses scripture. He uses teaching, right, the teaching of God to ward off the lies. So as I was trying to think about it, I think there's a simple practice that we could do every day that I think would really help us, actually. I think it's sort of like a morning-evening ritual. So in the morning, what if we took time to just really saturate ourselves and the truth of who Jesus was, who Jesus is in the scriptures. It's simple. It's not just like you don't need to run marathons, just show up. Verse 37 said, they didn't make room for his word. Are we making room for his word? Are we making room, right? First century rabbinic discipleship is all about you follow in the dust of your rabbi. You're covered in the dust of his feet, right? You're doing all that he does, all that he is. You're with him 24-7. We don't have a Jesus to literally follow. We have to connect to the spirit and we have to live into the scriptures if we want to be shaped into Jesus's image. Are we making room for the scriptures to shape us so that we know who God is, what he's about in the world? So that we can discern truth from lie. So we can know whether we're aligning with the kingdom or opposing it. Right, this is rehab. This is learning how to move your freedom muscles. This is learning the playbook in the game. What does it mean to be a participant? Now, in the evening, I think one thing we could do is actually ask ourselves, what are the lies we believe today about ourselves? I'm worthless. I don't have anything to offer. If only I did this, I'd be happy. What are the lies you are believing about yourself, about God? He doesn't love me. About the world? About the kingdom, what are the lies you are believing? And actually saying to Jesus in that time, Well, I bought into that one. God set me free. I don't want to be tangled in the web of these lies anymore. But there's a rhythm here of marinating in the truth of who Jesus is, his promises, and then, right, asking him to set you free, identifying the lies that trap you. But Jesus wants us to be set free. He says that in his truth, we will be set free. But there is a truth here that we need to actually make time for this. The Spirit will move. It's not just on our energy. The Spirit will give us what we need, but we do need to show up. One of the sort of frameworks we use regularly here at Wellspring is centered set. And the idea is this, Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. And the question is, for all of us, every time we show up, every day is, are we moving closer? Are we moving closer to the person of Jesus? Are we aligning our lives more and more with his kingdom? Or are we just going our own way? Or are we stuck where we are? Because my basic hypothesis, my basic thesis, is that if we're not moving towards the kingdom, in some way we're moving against it. And there's a real opportunity. Jesus says, hey, I am here to offer you truth that will set you free. There's an opportunity then for us to embrace it. Now to help us as we, we're going to enter worship in a minute, to help us as we enter into worship, to align our hearts and our minds and all of who we are with Jesus. Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion together. Communion is one of the few times, we're one of the many times that we're reminded of the cruciform shape of the gospel, right? That Jesus died for us. He submitted himself to the Father and did the Father's bidding to God's glory and the establishment of the kingdom to bring us rescue. And we celebrate it to remember who Jesus is and what he's like in the midst of competing truth claims, in the midst of all kinds of lies that we get ensnared in, we would come back to the Last Supper to communion to say, all right, Jesus, this is who you are. This is how much you love me. Now this is, you know, when we come here and Lord, I'm going to invite you in a minute to stand up and we're going to all move forward together as a way of saying, hey, this isn't just about your relationship to Jesus. It is about us as individuals and a community, moving towards Jesus, and embracing him. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his friends, and he grabbed a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he grabbed some wine at the table, and he said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Through his death on the cross being lifted up, he wants to set us free. And as we come up here, someone will be a bunch of us standing up here we'll say to you, the body of Jesus broken for you, and you'll grab a piece. Say the blood of Jesus shed for you, and you'll take that bread and you'll dunk it in here. And as you eat it, that's a way of saying, Jesus, I want to align my life with you. If you're not sure about that, if you're like, I don't know about this, but you don't want to awkwardly be sitting by yourself in the pew, feel free to come up and just say, hey, can you just give me a blessing? And uh, the communion people up here will just give you a blessing. We'll just say something like, May God guide you by his wisdom in your journey. Because we want to create a space here where we can choose and radically embrace Jesus and his kingdom, but also be in process. So no matter where you come in today, I just invite you. God is moving in this place. And as I invite the worship team up, I'm just going to pray for us as we enter communion. If you're going to be serving communion, if you could come up here, that would be great. Going to pray for us. God, we just ask that you would move among us. God, that you would be with us. And God, we do. We just come before you and say, Jesus, we are not perfect. God, all of us, I know myself, God can get sort of snagged in all kinds of lies about myself and who you are in this world. And God, we ask through this experience of worship and communion, God, that you would set us free. God, you will remind us of who you are. And Jesus, you would remind us that it is in you that we experience freedom. It is in you that truth resides. And God, we pray, God, we pray that we would not be caught up like the folks in the first century, thinking they're doing your will, and end up opposing your kingdom. God set us free. God, give us eyes to see what you are doing in this place that we may partner with your spirit, that we may align with your love in this world, that we may know what is good and beautiful and lovely, that we may experience the freedom of your kingdom. As we lean into this song of worship, as you're ready, feel free to come forward and experience communion. If as you're done with communion or before, we're gonna have a couple of people praying. If you wanna be prayed for, you just feel like, man, either before or after communion, you just need someone to lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. We have a couple of people praying uh, in the building. So feel free. Um, I think one will be, they'll both be in the back. You just go up to them, they'll be around for you. God, come into this place. Holy Spirit, fill this place that we may know you and love you more. Set us free by your truth that we may align with your kingdom. In your name, Jesus. Amen.